Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on May 6, 2018 at the Well Tavern in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The theme for the afternoon was miscommunication. Tonight is really exciting for me and for all of you because we have a special guest host. Uh, his name is William Mullen, and he and I have never worked together before, but we met for drinks, and that went really, really well. So William splits his time between P-Town and New York. He's a performer and a writer. He's written for the likes of Jane Lynch. William Mullen. Keep it going for Vanessa. So miscommunication. When I was thinking about this, I thought back in my life, when was the most miscommunication? And for me, it was middle school. There's so much going on in middle school. Your hormones are all out of whack, and then you're learning new words, and you don't know how to use those words, right? So you walk down the hallway, kind of look at a girl the wrong way, she looks at you and she's like, you're a travesty. And you're like, thanks. <laughs> Gotta look that up later. Travesty, what is that? And when I went to middle school, they had these dances. They were very, very cute, right? They would hold them in the gym or in, in the church. Middle school dances, very innocent. And it was mostly like a DJ playing like, well, I mean, I was middle school in the 80s, so it was like, we're dancing like flock of seagulls. <laughs> right, but then they would strategically place slow dance music throughout the evening, right? And the tension was high. And you went and you asked a girl to dance. And that was cool, but if you asked her at the second slow dance song, now there's chatter. What's going on over there? Are they a couple? Oh no. And then there was the, for me, in my town, the last dance of the whole night was a slow dance. It was Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. And if you asked a girl um, for that dance, that was like a marriage proposal. You needed parental consent. consent. And but before I go on, let's just talk about Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven as a slow dance. It's not a slow, sure, it starts out with a nice flute. Is a lady who knows it's nice. And you're there rocking back and forth with your middle school beauty, right? But then very quickly it turns into a rapid fire rock ballad. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant are like screaming, and you're still rocking back and forth very awkwardly. Lyrics, lyrics, another miscommunication. Still to this day, I have no idea what he's shouting about. I have no idea. I know, and you're just sitting there like that. Now, one dance in particular, when I was growing up, there was a neighborhood girl, Sharon, that I had my eye on. And I asked her in one of these dances for the first dance. And then we danced the second dance. And then the Stairway to Heaven dance. There's chatter now. People are looking at us. Is this a thing? And back then, to become boyfriend and girlfriend was very awkward. You had to actually say, will you go out with me? 
it was like the 1980s version of, will you go steady with me? Like, hey, Wally, you going steady with that girl? This was the 80s, but will you go out with me? It was kind of, and if she said yes, you were now an item. So I'm sitting there, we're rocking back and forth, and I knew Robert Plant was about to go off on the crazy train there. So then I got enough courage, and I said, Sharon, will you go out with me? And she looks at me, pauses, and says, yes. And then I pulled her close, so nice and innocent, and now we were an item. Now the next day in, in school, I had a job. I had to walk her to class, know her schedule, carry her books, right? And then all of a sudden, people are scribbling on their, their, their textbook covers. Billy and Sharon, true love forever. You know, Remember the T, L, and then F symbol? True love forever, and then that was sketched next to another couple, and they had more because they were going steady for a while. And that was next to a Doors logo, like everyone wrote the Doors on their, on their thing. I mean, the, 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 the cover text, the textbook covers were like the TMZ of the day. They would announce who the hot couple was. They're like, Billy and Sharon, when did this happen? And then I started, I started thinking about, okay, the next weekend, I'm gonna bring her to a movie and we can enjoy popcorn together, and we can laugh with ice cream cones, and then she broke up with me. Three days, after three days, and she was, she was very, I mean, I, I did everything, I thought I, I was following the rule book, three days, and she was very straightforward about it, very forward. She snuck a note in class, and I opened it, it said, Dear Billy, it was loud. I thought you asked, would you know what lyrics he sings? I'm sorry, Sharon. <laughs> this poor girl for three days had this odd stalker carrying her books and like people scribbling. And from that point forward in middle school, I only asked girls out when I was in the library. All right, folks, are you ready for, are you ready for more stories? Awesome. Great. All right, we're going to call our first storyteller up this evening, and I pull it out of the mosquito net. It's a mosquito net. That's the mosquito net. All right, I pulled out Ernest Bauer. Um, I have, uh, this is a story of miscommunication with my youngest daughter, who came up one time about two years ago. And we, uh, every time I get any of my daughters up, I try to take them out for lunch or dinner and, you know, make a nice event out of it. We went down to Land Ho. And all of you know, I assume, what Land Ho looks like. We walked in, and there's the bar on the left, there's a wall. There are tables along the wall, and then there's the rest of the restaurant. We were escorted down to the last table. She took off her jacket, it was chilly that day, and I sat down, and we had a meal. And it was nothing special, it was nice. It was um, something that we both enjoyed and looked forward to the story, uh, stories that we had not shared with each other for a while. And then it's, the meal was over. We got up, and I put on my jacket, and she got up, and she put on her jacket. And she said, my hat's not here. I said, your hat's not here? 
I said, yes. She said, I put it in my sleeve, but it's not here. I said, well, it, did you hang it, the jacket on the back of the chair? And she said, yes. And since it was the last chair on that row, it could easily have fallen out. So I said, let's, let's check the floor. And we did. We moved the chairs, we looked around, and it was not there. So I said to her, what did it look like? Well, we're fortunate tonight in that the waitress is wearing a cap that was exactly like it. It's like a little, uh, she called it a cappy or something. Well, in any case, it was nothing special. So I said, okay, let's, let's, let's look again. And we did, we moved the chairs, we went beyond the chairs on my side, and there was no chairs behind her because that was the entrance to the bar area. So I said, maybe it fell out and somebody kicked it somewhere else. We couldn't find it. We called over a waitress and said, we're looking for a hat. And I, she said, you're looking for a hat? I said, yes, my daughter has her hat. And so I, while the waitress was looking, I said, tell me about this hat. She says, it's my very special hat. I said, okay, how special? Well, I've had it for 15 years. I said, okay, and, and you survived 15 years with one hat? That's, that's a miracle in and of itself. So I said, I said to him, I said, you know, uh, Jess is her name, Jessie's her name. I said, Jesse, I have misplaced and lost many a hat. Maybe we'll just let it go and get you another hat. She said, no, Dad, no, you don't understand. I said, I said to myself, I don't understand a hat? A missing hat? I've missed many a hat in my lifetime. So the waitress looked around, really uh, expanded the, the search area, and no hat. Well, my daughter was getting extremely depressed. I said, oh my God, this must have been a very special hat. She said to me, Dad, you don't understand. When I, she was a teacher, she said, if I were walking down the street, and I was 100 feet in front of other people, they would know that that was me because of the hat. It was my signature hat. I said, okay, okay, I think I had a hat that had the same emotional attachment to me, but this was a little bit, but I can't criticize my daughter. So I said to her when we finally couldn't find the hat, what do you wanna do? Do you want to go back to Wellfleet? She said, no, let's go out in the car, and we'll sit a little while, and then I'll come back in. I said, that's a good idea. <laughs> I said, that's a good idea. So we go out, we sit, and, and she's sitting there very quietly and very depressed. I'm looking at this vivacious, uh, really charming daughter who is overwhelmingly depressed by a misplaced hat. So I, she came back. Couldn't find the hat. So I said, oh my God, what do you want to do? Because I didn't know what to do. She said, well, let's wait a little longer and I'll go back in again. I said, 
I'll be the last per person to say, no, that's not a good idea. But okay, we waited another five minutes. She went back in, and nobody could find the hat. Okay, so I said, all right, do you want to go back to Wellfleet now? She said, I guess we have nothing else we can do. The hat is gone. So I, I said, I tried to make excuses. I said, maybe somebody kicked it, and then somebody saw it, and they didn't know who it belonged to, and the result is they picked it up. All right. The ride back to Wellfleet was like I was in a funeral procession. The hat had died and gone away. So we get back to my house here in Wellfleet, and I said, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to call Brian. Brian will know what to do. Brian's her boyfriend, or was her boyfriend. So, so I said, all right, that, let, let's get somebody else in on this dilemma. And she calls Brian. I didn't hear the conversation. And I didn't want to actually encounter her with this situation any longer because it's depressing. I was getting depressed. So within five minutes, the phone rings, and it's Brian. And Brian says, go back to the restaurant. They found your hat. Now, Brian's the kind of guy that would say, you better find that hat, or I will come up there and tear the place apart. And they must have torn the place apart. And the, just keep in mind what I said earlier. I didn't understand what that hat meant to my daughter. And the result was, we, at the end of this conversation, I said, oh my god, I've been her father for 45 years, and I did not understand how important that hat was. And that was it. I, I felt like we had a chasm between us, but I was happy she found her hat. Ernest, big round of applause. It's really hard to go first. Going first is the worst, and you did great. Thank you, Ernest. Give a big round of applause to our good friend, Jerry Riley. So most miscommunication is innocent. You know, I say something, you hear it different, and we get our wires crossed and confused. But there's another kind of miscommunication Oh, yes. There's another kind of miscommunication, which is intentional, when you're kind of messing with somebody. Now, 30 years ago, a long time ago, before I had kids of my own, I lived in this house that had a garage. And people who know me know I can get carried away with things. Um, what are you pointing there? Huh? Me? Oh. Louder? Louder, please. OK, I'll keep talking. So 30 years ago, I lived in this house that had a garage. And people who know me know I can get carried away with things. So it's a couple days before Halloween. All of a sudden, I become obsessed. And I start working out in the garage. And we build this big thing. And it's called the Monster's House. And it's kind of cool. And we have an electric garage door open. The door goes up. And all these dummies are connected to the door. And they stand up. But the main thing was we had this living room in the middle of the garage. And on Halloween night, I was out on the street dressed as a, a devil. I got a devil mask on, and I'm kind of the, the, the 
that the person rounding everybody up. And the deal is, kids come down, and the door opens up, and the monster mother comes out. And it's this woman, she's in an apron, very nice, gentle voice, but she's got a monster mask. And the whole thing is, this is the monster family's house, and come on in, and she, she's gonna you know, bring you into her house and give you candy. So she'd lead a bunch of kids into the house, and in the house, we have this narrow little corridor, and it goes down past this living room setup, and there's the rest of the monster family. Dad monster, brother and sister monster, TV, a coffee table. So mom brings the kids to the back of the garage, gives them the candy, and then says, oh, it's a little cold in here, and she waves her hand, and the garage door closes. Now the kids are locked into the garage. As Soon as the door is closed, the mother says, you should uh, stay and watch a little TV, and she waves her hand, and the TV snaps on. And then the monster family starts squabbling amongst themselves about what they're going to watch. And they wave the hand, and each wave the hand, and the channel changes. And it's the sports, and the news, and the this and that. And then they wave the hand, and suddenly, this, the, the gory story comes on the TV. Now, the gory story, we filmed that afternoon. We took our friend with a two-headed costume, and we put him right where the TV was going to be, and we put the camera right where those kids are going to be, and we filmed this guy telling himself a story. So the guy, the gory story comes up on the TV. The kids are now locked in the thing. And on the TV, the story goes like this. Once upon a time in a land called Newton, there was a monster family. And they lived quietly all year long. And they lived for one night, Halloween. And on that night, they would lure little children into their house with promises of candy. <laughs> now, it's not that the children weren't scared, for scared indeed they were. But the power of candy was just too much to resist. Once they got the children into the house, they locked the door. And then on the TV, you see the garage door going down behind the guy. And it said, and once the story was over, the monster family would stand up, and the four monsters in front of the TV stand up. And they'd turn towards the children, and the four monsters turn. And they'd attack, and when it says attack, these speakers all behind them blare out this big thing, dummies fall down, the kids scream out of their mind, the doors open up and they pour out. Well, this turned into a phenomenon. And like immediately people are calling each other. And suddenly we got crowds coming and going. So meanwhile, I'm out in the street. I'm, I'm directing traffic. I'm getting the next ground of kids coming there. And the kids go in. The doors go down. It takes about three minutes. The next kids are coming. OK, yeah, the doors go up. Everybody comes out roaring, screaming, laughing. So this is going on and having a good time. I'm out there in my devil costume. Come on up. The monster family is dying to meet you. So anyway, this mother comes up with a little kid, like a four-year-old or something says, excuse me, um, is, is this too scary for a little kid? Well, I just refused to come out of character. I said, of course it's scary, it's Halloween! And she goes, no, no, I mean, he's only four years old. Is it too scary? Of course it's gonna scare the living man. It's gonna scare him crazy! And, she, and I just won't come out of character. And she keeps asking me, and I just refuse. And I'm just, so the kids go, Mom, I want to see it, I want to see it, you know? So. She just gives up and like waits in line. The doors open up, they all go in. Three minutes later, the doors open up, the kids all come roaring out laughing. And then here comes the mother with this four-year-old kid who is screaming in terror. He is totally traumatized. He is completely freaked out and shaken. And the mother locks eyes with me and she is pissed. She comes running over to me and sees, that was way too scary for a four-year-old. What were you thinking? I said, I told you it was scary. Now, somewhere out there, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent now, and I think back, I feel terrible about that, but uh, at the time, it was pretty funny. And you know, somewhere out there, there's, a, there's an adult, 
And he doesn't know why, but any time he gets near a garage, he's overcome with fear. And every year when Halloween comes, he's uh, you know pretty distraught. So um, wherever you are, if you if he's out there, um, I'm sorry about that. Thank you. Keep it going for Jerry. That is awesome. And it's great because I hear you're also opening up a, Mont a Montessori school in, in your living room. It's fantastic. I can't wait. Yeah. Accelerated education. All right. Our next storyteller, Julie Rocket, come to the stage. So um, my friends that are in recovery always have the best phrases, like you can't go 10 miles into the woods and expect to come back in five, or there's no way around, only through. And there was one phrase that I heard, and I did not understand it, and it's, don't judge your insides by others' outsides. And <laughs> it came to be that I understood it because it happened to me. <laughs> and one morning, my husband was out of town, and I get a ring on my um, up front door. And I live in Charlestown, so everybody does ding dong ditch, and it's like before 7 a.m. So it's not until like the third ring that <laughs> I come down, and I have my baby in my arms. And then I see my neighbor Andy on the stairs in our hallway, and then his wife's downstairs, and she's talking to, like, I think it's her mother, and her mother's there with her two little ugly dogs, and uh, I look, and Andy's got his arm around my older son, who's two and a half, and he's wearing just a diaper, and Andy looks at me and goes, Ronan got out, and I said, yeah, I can see that, and, he go, and the woman with the two dogs looks at me and goes, what can we do to help you, and I, I, I go, I, 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 don't, I don't know, and she goes, you're obviously overwhelmed, and I am here to help you. And I, again, I, I just felt like I was underwater. And she's like, let me help you. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> and so she, Andy looks at me and goes, Ronan was outside on the sidewalk. We live on a busy street. He was outside on the sidewalk in just his diapers. <laughs> And he walked up to the woman with the dogs and said, my daddy's out of town and I want to make new friends. <laughs> and I burst into tears. And the woman then says, this is it. Yep, I'm going to help you. I live right by here and I just stopped working. I don't really have many friends and my son's not talking to me. I used to be a nurse. I'm going to come and help you raise these kids. And I, uh, I was just in such a haze that I grabbed both my kids, and I don't even remember. I might have like said something to her or given her my number. I don't remember. I ran inside the house, called my husband, and I'm like, and I tell him the story, and he goes, "Ronan knows how to open the doors." I was like, "He opened four sets of locks, and he's two and a half years old." <laughs> and uh, he's like, oh my God, well, uh, you know, he has nothing to offer. So then I call, I call my parents, and my parents go, Ronan knows how to open locks? And I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere here. So I get the kids ready, and I have to go to work, and our nanny shows up, and I just burst into tears and tell her what's happened. And I was like, I, 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 what I did is like nearly criminal. Like I could get arrested for neglect and I'm sobbing. 
And I start to drive away. And she then calls me and was like, if you get arrested, <laughs> I will, what was it? She goes, I will testify for you in Jesus' name. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, Oh, thank God, you know, because these people think that I'm this horrible mom. And it's, and I was, a, I was a good mom. Like, I was sick all nine months with both these kids. So I had really easy babies. Karmically, I deserved this. And so, um, so maybe I got a little arrogant and thought, I'm really good. And this is my payback. I don't know. <laughs> and so that day, I had the good fortune, the grace of having all these friends call me because I had plans with them. And every one of them had a worse story than mine. And it was so great because I had always thought of them as these super moms. Like one of them is my mom's friend, and she's a surgeon too. And she's like, you know, honestly, from the hours of three to seven, I had no idea where my kids were. <laughs> I have another friend who was like, oh, we were staying in a New York hotel. I found my kid walking along the windowsill like, on the outside of it. Sorry. <laughs> and every one of these stories made me feel a little bit better. And then my friend, who's so funny, I, I'm telling her these stories in between gasps and tears. And she goes, you know, what? I bet that woman woke up that morning and was like... I don't really have many friends. I don't work anymore. I, uh, my son won't talk to me. Today's the day I kill myself. <laughs> and then your little boy walked up and said, I need to make new friends. And I'm like, yes, there's always a good side to this. Like, this one thing didn't make me a bad mom, even though that's kind of how it looked on the outside to this woman. But when I got to hear everybody's inside stories, I realized how you know, we're all good parents. Just one little thing shouldn't affect it. And so that wasn't the moral of the story. That wasn't the great thing I learned. The best part about this story is I never ran into that woman again. <laughs> I never had to move. <laughs> so thank you. All right, that was awesome. Another round of applause. Yes. Okay, next on stage, please welcome Janice Summers. Janice, woohoo! Hi. Ooh, I'm a little wobbly. Hi, Beth. <laughs> I had some miscommunications starting like in 1992 when I met my partner. And um, the first thing that happened was I, went, I met her at a breakfast with a college friend of mine who wanted to interview her about her graduate school experience. And she thought she was there cruising me. And I was kind of, no, um, that's not what's happening here. Then a few weeks later, I met her again at an Al-Anon meeting. And she said, hi, my name's Janice, too. And I said, so what? And she said, well, I just wanted you to know that I have the same name. And I said, OK. And that was the way that was left. Then, a f uh, then I went away. That was in August. And then Labor Day, I went away. And I was gone for a couple of months. And when I came back, I was really depressed because my best friend had died during that time. And I was staying at another friend's house in Truro. And um, I took a job in the Stop and Shop, which was then an A&P. And 
by then, the woman um, who would be my partner was established back in town, and because she had been living in Boston and back in Provincetown, and uh, some of her friends said they saw me working the cash register. So she would come in and uh, drive by and look in the window, and if I was at a cash register, she'd come in and buy like her evening meal, which was rice aroni, and come through the register. And this one night she came through and she said, where have you been? You went away, we just met. And I said, well, my friend died and uh, I, I was gone with taking care of business with her children, blah, blah. And so she said, well, you should call me sometime. And she hands me a business card and she's a psychotherapist. And I thought, I'm never calling her. <laughs> this is crazy. But a couple of months later, I find myself in this house in the woods in Truro, and I don't know anybody here, and um, I wanted to go to the movies. So I saw her again, and again at a, that same Al-Anon meeting, and I said, when, at, during the break, I said, would you like to go to the movies with me? And her, all her friends sitting near her, not on like the eighth graders that they were, um, we're like, ooh, she's asking you out, ooh. And uh, so we made a date to go to see The Muppets, and, which I thought was the movie that would be the best choice for me. So I picked her up and we drive to, we're driving to Hyannis and she says, is this a date? And I said, absolutely not. And it went on like this. <laughs> New Year's Eve, she came by my house and said, would you like to take, a, it was during the day, would you like to take a walk out to Hatches Harbor? I had never been there, so I said, of course. So we're walking and we're looking, lying on our bellies out there looking at seals and on the way back, she said, was this a date? And I said, no. <laughs> this is, I need friends. I don't, I don't need a date. I don't need a girlfriend. I'm just grieving. And, so by Martin Luther King Day, we were going to go play bingo at the VFW. Only I heard that she was a womanizer. So I said to myself, I'm here to be a womanizer too. So I'm going to womanize her first. And I went to her house to pick her up to go to bingo and she had a headache. And she, I said, well, I'm coming in anyway. She, I called her, and she said, I'm at, I said, I'm outside. I'm going to come in, because I was going to confront her about this womanizing. <laughs> and I went in, she said, I don't care. Come in if you want to. So I did. I went in, and I went up to her loft, where she was sleeping with the pillow over her head, and I got in bed with her where we talked until midnight, and I told her how she was a womanizer and how I was a womanizer. And we've been together for 26 years. Thank you. Is this your partner? No. Because I, I was looking at her the whole time and there was no reaction. I was... I just love, I just love the fact that how to solve a womanizing problem. Get in the bed with her. Just get in the bed with her. Awesome. All right, we're going to get our next storyteller up. Matthew Cecil. 
Where's Matthew Cecil? Come on up, Matthew. So um, when you, you work for a helicopter company in Alaska that takes people climbing on glaciers, and that's your job as a guide, um, your days tend to be pretty exciting, more or less. Your average, even your average, even your crappy day tends to be pretty exciting, because crap usually means something happened to someone else. Um, so this one day I came into work, um, there was definitely a, a buzz about. Um, and what I found out as I walked in was that today was the day we were shooting uh, an episode of a television show. Now we get photo, photo sessions and stuff like that, a lot of celebrities here and there and stuff like that. But um, this, there's a lot of buzz going on. My, my friend Doug, who's one of the other guides, pulled me aside. And what I noticed right away is he was wearing his Baywatch crew jacket and he was wearing his Ray-Ban sunglasses because uh, he had worked on a, a, as a consultant for a, a mountaineering stunt they did on Baywatch in like 1987. Um, and so he was like, he was like, so I heard it's you and me and Sean. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he said, well, I'm already in the Screen Actors Guild, so I'm going to be on camera. And Sean's the lead guide. Um, and so he's going to be up there as well. And since, um, you know, like you're you, I don't know what I am, um, you're coming up as well. And so I was like, fantastic. So they bring me into this room to meet the, uh, the, the whole crew and whoever's going to be doing the television show. And I'm like, whatever. So I walk in. They're like, well, Matt, we'd like to just introduce you real quick to uh, Mrs. Stewart here. Uh, Martha is going to go ahead and do the whole show um, instead of her producers. And I was like, oh, hi. Um, and so I quickly realized why I'm there. I'm basically the guy that's going to make sure that no one dies that day. So I'm setting up lines, setting up uh, safety rigs, doing moving people from shoot to shoot, and doing all this other stuff. And the other thing I noticed right away when they started introducing me to the crew is that their entire crew is from New York City. That's where she suits her show. So when you live in Alaska, I'm originally from New Jersey. Uh, when you live or born and raised in Alaska, people from the East Coast are like from another planet. People from New York City might as well be speaking a different language. And so as soon as they started introducing me, they're like, people are like, the guys are like, hey, what's up? Yo, hey, you doing? And I was like, oh, now I know why I'm here. Because uh, none of the Alaskans could deal with um, any of these people from like Long Island or anything like that. So they're like, stick the Jersey kid on it. Um, so anyway, so, so we go up and we're, we're talking to the producers and we, you know, we're like, we're kind of like, we understand that she can be very difficult. Um, do you have any tips for us or anything like that? And she said, look, you know, Martha Stewart is, is, is very smart and she's very dedicated to everything she does. Um, and because of that, she expects that from everyone else. And she also has a very dry sense of humor. So if you add those three things together, it makes her seem like kind of asshole. Um, <laughs> And so I was like, good to know. So we're cruising around on the glaciers, and when you, when you go around, you know, like I have some lines set up, but there's some spots where you just kind of walk. And even though there's crevasses and all sorts of other stuff, um, it's all, you can see it all, so it's not a big deal. So there's this little crevasse, and I kind of like straddle it, and then the whole crew is coming through, including my friends that are guides and everything. So I put my hand out, and like they all take it, because once, if you start falling on a glacier, like, like you step over something and you lose your footing and you start going, you can't stop them. Like it's ice, like you're gone. So, so what we do with each other, even when we're climbing and stuff like that, is we spot each other, we put out a hand. So even my friend Sean, who's the lead guide, and my friend Doug, who are like, they take my hand like, as they go across this crevasse. And Martha doesn't. So I stop the whole crew, and Sean actually comes over, and he's like, what's going on? 
And I'm like, well, I just wanted to point out that, you know, for safety reasons, to make sure everybody does what they're supposed to. And he, and so Sean gives her a little lecture. She's like, you know, Matt is here to make sure we're safe. If he puts out his hand, this is something that I, I will take his hand. He will take his hand. We all will. This is not special treatment. This is not anything else. And she's like, I fully understand. I just didn't want to be treated any differently than anyone else. Fantastic. So we do all this stuff. We go all over the ice. We're doing shoots. And she's like, isn't this wonderful? And so we go to this spot where she's actually going to learn how to ice climb. So they're like, Matt, go ahead, rig all the ropes, put all the top ropes in. We'll get ready so we can kind of like swing in there and teach her how to ice climb. And I'm like, fantastic. So I go ahead. I rig up all the lines. And so they all come up. And so Sean, my friend Sean says, why don't we have Matt work all the ropes? And then that way, Doug and I can climb with Martha. And it will look great. Like we're like, hey, this is how you do it. And she's like, fantastic. So, um, so, so they set up all the ropes and everything, and she walks over, and so Sean's like, let's have Matt work the ropes. And she just looks at me, and she goes, she goes, are you Mike? And I was like, you know, my brother's Mike, and I grew up my whole life with my parents being like, Mike, Matt, whatever the hell your name is, get in here. So I'm kind of used to it. But at this point, like, she's literally heard my name like six times. Right? She's like, this is Matt. He's here for your safety. This is Matt, so you don't die. So I'm like, I'm a little bit offended, and I'm like, you know, and so I stop and I'm like, you know, this is, I don't want to be a jerk, but this is like the third time that we've had these interactions. And, you know, like, it's fine. You know, like, I understand you're, you're a mega celebrity and all this other stuff, but like, this is like, this is your life. Like, if I screw this up, you, you die. So like, you might want to listen to me. And she looks at me very slowly and she goes, are you miked? <laughs> and I said, oh, and she said, are you wearing a microphone? <laughs> and I went, as a matter of fact, no, I'm not. She said, well, then you can't be in the shot, can you? And I was like, point taken. And I kind of unclipped, stepped away, and let them deal with everything that had to be done and everything like that. And um, so... <laughs> So the day goes on, and she takes my hand across everything, and we keep everyone alive. I think one of the cameramen took a head plant, and he broke his nose, I think. But that's like, that happens. Like, we just plugged them up, and it was fine. Um, so we do the whole thing. We get down to the base. Um, we're at the airport. And uh, I, I know, I can never keep it under five. Um, so, so we go in there, and, and everyone's kind of getting all their gear off and everything. And so Martha stands up in the middle of the room, and she said, I'd just like to take a moment to thank Doug and Sean for showing us the ice and teaching us how to do all these wonderful things. And she goes, I'd like to take an extra special second to thank the man who kept us all alive today, our good friend Mike. <laughs> and she turns around to me and winks. <laughs> and that's it. Thank you. So... I know, I know I'm not supposed to go over, but I have a, a super two-second side note. If you Google Martha Stewart Mendenhall Glacier, M-E-N-D-E-N-H-A-L, Mendenhall Glacier, it's in Juneau, Alaska. If you Google that, her show still has the video. This is from 2001, pre-indictment, by the way. Um, so if you look up, she still has on her website the tapes from those shows. You'll see my friend Doug Wesson and my friend Sean James and my, Bob, uh, my boss Bob Engelbrecht showing her the glacier with no sign of me at all. That is fantastic. Keep it going for Matthew. Or Mike. Keep it going for Mike. Please come to the stage and also... 
have a warm welcome for Judith Stiles. Okay, so this story is called The John Problem. My husband's name is John, my father-in-law is John, his father was John, and my son is John. So that's a lot of Johns in one family to contend with. So like uh, millions of Johns around the world, we gave out nicknames. My father-in-law, Jack, my son, Johnny, and problem solved for a while until my son, Johnny, turned 18, and he came downstairs, and he said, I can vote now, I can drink in bars, and I'm not Johnny anymore, I'm John, so please call me John from now on, and I said, okay, I understand, I will do that, I will call you John, I promise, except I didn't. The um, years ticked by, and about a week ago, uh, the Johns and I went out to dinner, in a restaurant, and I have to say, because I'm 90% deaf, I have to take my hearing aids out when I eat because it's like cacophony in your head. It's like crunching lettuce sounds like a karaoke microphone, full blast. So I, I, w I was in the restaurant, and I ordered codfish, and I took my hearing aids out, and I was concentrating on my codfish, and I, I took a sip of water. So I looked up, and I could see that the two Johns were arguing. And I couldn't hear them, but I could see it, you know, like squinty eyes and body language. So uh, because I can read my husband's lips pretty well, I looked at him and I said, what is the problem? What are you guys arguing about in this restaurant? And he said to me, Johnny is mad because we still call him Johnny. And I said, OK. I looked at my son, I said, we will call you John from now on, I promise. And I looked at my husband and I said, and we will call you other John, and we're gonna get back to eating dinner. And my husband was not happy about other John, but I wanted to concentrate on my food. And I could see for the rest of the meal that everybody, they were very glum and very sad and something was wrong. So when I got home, I cornered other John and I asked him, I said, what, what is the problem here? What's going wrong between you guys? He said, well, it's very noisy in the restaurant. We were talking, and I'm not sure, but I think I heard him say, I want to kill myself. And I, I said, ooh, uh, you know, I'm a mother, and all my red flags went up, and I got very upset. So I, I went upstairs to my son's room, and he was like normal. He's on his bed. He's texting, and I say, so, um, Dad says you're not feeling so great, and he's texting, texting, and... Uh, I said, on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, one's very bad and 10's very good. How are you feeling? And he texted some more and he looked at me and he said, I'm a five. And I said, five? And I couldn't figure out, you know, half glass, half empty, glass, half full. What does that mean in terms of, you know, what does it mean? So I hugged him, I gave him a kiss, and I said, you know, I think you need to see a therapist. Maybe I'll, I'll find you a therapist. Therapists sort things out sometimes. So I stayed up all night researching therapists on Cape Cod. I called my friend Joyce, who stays up all night, and she helped me. And by the time the, the sun came up, I had the name of two therapists. And I went and parked myself by the coffee maker, because I knew he'd stop there on his way out the door. And when he came down, he was kind of sleepy, and I handed him this piece of paper, and I said, I have a name of a man therapist and a woman therapist, and you can pick. And he scratched his head, and he said, 
why, why do I have to see a therapist? Why, tell me again why? And I said, well, you know, Dad said at the restaurant last night, you said, he thought maybe you said he wasn't sure that you felt like killing yourself. And he looks down, shakes his head, and he starts laughing. And he's laughing for an eternity. And I say, What's, what are you laughing about? And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Mom, Netflix. Netflix. I was talking about a show. I was telling Dad about a show on Netflix where this kid wanted to get out of taking an exam at school, and I feel sick didn't work anymore. So he told his father he felt like he wanted to kill himself, and he got out of taking the exam. And I felt so relieved, but I, I still felt worried. I thought, maybe he's messaging me somehow by telling this story. Maybe there's still a problem. But I said, well, go tell your father that this was a Netflix story, and this was not you. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that later. I'm going to go out and buy donuts. And I said, OK. And he gets on his bike, and he rides away. And I have this cold cup of, cup of coffee of his, and I feel terrible. I feel just so bad still. And so I felt bad. I couldn't hear what they were saying at the restaurant. So I asked myself, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad do you feel about going deaf? And <laughs> I was a 1. And if there was a, a number lower than 1, that would be me. So I sat down on the porch, and I drank the cold cup of coffee, and I remembered something my friend Manny said to me. He's 79 years old. He's going deaf. Old people always go deaf. And he's going deaf. And he said, oh, my wife is always nagging me to get hearing aids. And I don't want to hear what she has to say. <laughs> and, and besides, I hear other things, wonderful other things. I said, I asked him, I said, like what? And he said, he really said this, I hear stones, I hear the roots of the trees, I hear the Holy Spirit. And I thought, hmm, that's a little weird, but you know, I've been talking to the Holy Spirit for decades and I never hear anything back, so yeah, I'm gonna try it. So I closed my eyes and I heard nothing. I didn't hear the Holy Spirit, I didn't hear any stones. I thought maybe I'm trying too hard, maybe I'm not trying hard enough. And I gave up. And then I looked down off the porch, and there was all this beautiful green grass. And it used to be brown and ugly, and now it's so bright green and beautiful. And then I, 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 I see the buds on the trees and the bushes, and my needle starts to move off of one toward five. And spring will do that. The, uh, Daffodils started jiggling, and they looked like they were laughing, so my, my needles started moving toward 10. And I hoped and I prayed that my son on his bike out there was not thinking about the end game so much like donuts, but <laughs> that he would see the, the daffodils laughing and the, the green grass, because the unstoppable spring was here. No matter how bad your winter was, or his winter was, or my winter was, the Unstoppable Spring is here. Judith, very nice. That was uh, a really amazing way to wrap the show. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so just speaking of John's, 
Uh, some of you probably saw the ad for the mosquito. I posted a few different pictures for this theme of miscommunication, and one of them was a text message from somebody to me, hashtag true story. And um, I took a screenshot of these texts, and I saved it. And this is from a John, another John, a special John, who I dated at one point, who kind of disappeared without a trace, right? Dating is like so fraught with miscommunication. I love it. Okay, so it went like this. Hi. Hi, it's John. You probably have no interest, but I've thought about you every day since I turned 40. I don't even know if this is your number anymore. I guess I just bugged out. I think you started to get too close to me, and I just lost it. Just wanted to let you know that I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure, I hope you had a nice summer. You were a keeper. I just wanted to let you know that since I'm sure you're not interested in speaking, you were a great catch and an even better woman. I'm sorry for mistreating you. Okay. So uh, I took a pause. I had a funeral to go to. Very sad. I was very upset. But I was sort of like, I was so over this by now. Thanks for, you know, like stirring it back up. But I was a little emotional. So I thought, okay, let's just have some closure. So I just texted him back, um, thank you. And then I got a text back from him that said, who is this? <laughs> So glad I'm not single anymore. <laughs> so, doesn't compare to your story, but it's a John thing. It's a John thing. Um, I want to give a huge round of applause for William Mullen for co-hosting. I especially want to thank our storytellers tonight. This ain't easy, and we have no show without you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. This episode of The Mosquito was produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and sound engineered by Mark Van Bork. Find your next opportunity to join us live on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever podcasts are found. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. <laughs>